When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Cureleaf, a medical marijuana dispensary. Whether you're a longtime patient or you're just getting acquainted with this incredible plant, Cureleaf of Pennsylvania is honored to guide you along your medical marijuana journey. Visit us soon at our new State College location. This is the Blue White Breakdown. The premier podcast for all things Penn State football. Talk about culture. It's something that should show up in every aspect of your program. It's the Blue White Breakdown. Brought to you by Penn Live. Here are your hosts, Daniel Gallen and Dustin Hawkinsmith. Welcome in. It's the Blue White Breakdown brought to you by Penn State Health. I'm Dustin Hawkinsmith here with Daniel Gallen together for the first time in, in like a few weeks here, Daniel. We've had. Some different things going on where you and I haven't podcasted together. And so now I consider it a great gift to everyone who listens that we are here and we're back to talk a little Penn State football. It's not the newsiest time of year, but we do have some stuff to talk about. Yeah, it's great to be back. It's a very dreary morning in State College. So this is a nice little ray of sunshine uh, for for my Thursday. (laughs) Well, first of all, you don't have to say it's repetitive. It's redundant to say uh, a very dreary morning in, in state college. It's just a morning in state college. I know that's right. We, it, I mean, it's, it's been a busy week with the start of spring practice. I know that you and Bob um, had talked about everything that James Franklin had to say and I'm sure heights and weights and all that stuff that was updated. So we're going to focus on the announcement from earlier this week about the NIL collective that's being formed around State College by some prominent alumni. And um, I think it's pretty much exactly what you would think, just alumni coming together to facilitate, you know, deals and to try to bring Penn State into the future with name, image, likeness. Um, it's something that I think the program definitely needed to sort of jumpstart. And it looks like there's a couple others too in State College. So it's it'll be interesting to see how this all sorts out, who facilitates what, and how quickly Penn State can not be on the cutting edge so much because that ship has sailed for now, but at least be representative of where a Power 5 program should be with this. Yeah, James Franklin has said over the past couple of months that Penn State isn't really where it needs to be in terms of NIL, and I think that these kind of collectives are are a big part of it as you kind of look around um, the college football landscape as as a way to kind of facilitate NIL to kind of bring players kind of on more under one umbrella and maybe figure out a way to kind of funnel some of that cash uh, to players and kind of a, a more, I guess, organized fashion instead of all of these kind of like individual deals with this place, like endorsements here, endorsements here. And I think a big part of the collectives too, is that I think that it, it gives fans the opportunity to kind of contribute to chip into these nonprofits um, and have kind of their money. Uh, make its way to the players. It's something I'm still trying to wrap my head around a little bit. Uh, I've plenty of reading and, and research to do, but given where kind of what James Franklin has said about Penn State in the NIL space, I think this is a step forward. It's a step forward. And I think uh, it's just going to be, it's such a new frontier. 
I think it's still NIL is still for a lot of people in that buzz phrase and not really sure what to make of it. And it's kind of conceptual. At least now you start to have the, the inner workings, the makings of some organization, maybe somebody from each of these different groups who can kind of coordinate with the school to try to figure out what's in everybody's best interests and how to facilitate these things. And you hear it all the time. And I think it was, uh, Jimbo Fisher, um, the second national sign today, really made a big deal out of it and saying this stuff's always been going on. Now it's just legal, but it's also, you know, it can be such a recruiting advantage, which I think I haven't really seen it quantified yet, but I think you've seen the early makings of some schools being able to get to the finish line with kids because they have something that's going to guarantee them some money. And whether, you know, you look at that as, as being the the end times for college football, or you look at that as being, the modern way of doing business, which that's how I view it. I mean, things are changing quickly and I think it's up to every individual school, the way things are set up, you need to change and evolve pretty quickly with it. And I think, as you mentioned, James Franklin said they haven't really changed or evolved quite quickly enough yet. And we'll see if this is kind of the thing that nudges them in the right direction. Yeah. It's been really interesting to see which schools have kind of, you know, taken the leap. Uh, I think forward, I think it's unsurprising um, that a lot of it comes out of the SEC. Typically, you know, that, that's where the money is. And, uh, that's where there's a lot of people willing to kind of throw around their money, um, to help their football programs. Um, I think Tennessee, there's been a decent amount of buzz about kind of their NIL program, their collective. Um, when I was doing the research, I actually got a, a good definition of kind of what, uh, the NIL collective, like what it means from an athletic story by David Ubbin about Tennessee. And for our, our listeners who might be unfamiliar, uh, cause I did not know what an NIL collective was until a couple months ago. Uh, David Ubbin in the athletic defines the NIL collective as a new catch all term in college sports for groups of fans with varying budgets set aside to help aid players in monetizing their name, image, and likeness. Money is pooled from a variety of sources and distributed to the players according to their value, while players are responsible for providing deliverables such as event appearances, social media posts, or autographs. So I think that that kind of is a good look at sort of the the mechanics that are going on, I think, in terms of, you know, there is an exchange here where I think that obviously if you're a fan and, and you put your money in, into this collective, you want to get something back. And I think that there's kind of, uh, you know, it's sort of being being set up that way. Yeah. And, uh, and in case you needed another buzzy, you know, catchphrase, NIL and deliverables are, uh, <laughs> are, are, are a good match there. But, yeah, we'll see what this does going forward. I think it's, it's safe to say you will see more more of these kids. And, and what we've seen so far from Penn State guys is more in that, hey, I'll be signing autographs or, hey, I'll be making an appearance here. Um, you haven't really seen the, Hey, I got a free Mercedes out of this or, you know, anything like that yet, but maybe, maybe we'll grow into that. Looking into another area here, um, Penn State and the NFL draft, uh, it's coming quick. Uh, what a little over a month uh, away now. And you know what we've seen yet? You, you uh, got on the conference call with Mel Kuyper Jr. And I want to hear what he had to say about all these different guys, but I would say first and foremost, and you've seen this, um, as you've gone about. Um, looking around at mock drafts is that the developments, the craziness of NFL free agency and trades, it really kind of may, maybe has an opening for Jahan Dotson late in the first round now. Other wide receivers too. But for the Green Bay Packers to deal their number one wide receiver to, um, to the Raiders and Devontae Adams, and then for just this week, 
the Kansas City Chiefs to deal their number one Tyreek Hill to the Miami Dolphins. That has two late round teams suddenly kind of in the market for a wide receiver. And and I don't it's it's without question that they're going to have a need there. It's just kind of how much do they like Jahan Dotson? Yeah, it's been really interesting to watch kind of how that the back half of that first round has kind of opened up a little bit for for Jahan Dotson. I mean, I think we talked about this earlier this spring where before these deals, I really looked at the Packers and the Chiefs as ideal landing spots for Dotson because they had Devontae Adams, because they had Tyreek Hill. And I really felt that Dotson would be the kind of player who could, especially the Packers, I mean, Outside of Adams, there's really been, you know, you got Marquez Valdez scantling for a, a little bit. Like you get a little bit out, out of Alan Lazard. It's just kind of, I think that the quarterback there does a, makes those wide receivers maybe look a little bit better than they are besides Adams. But I kind of looked at those places as opportunities for Dotson where he could go in and he wouldn't have to be the guy and he could wind up being an incredibly productive rookie. But now you look at those teams and he could go in and he could be the guy which I think would be a, a pretty cool development for him. It is kind of funny, uh, kind of what you can do with those uh, mock drafts now. I think in the roundup, uh, I think Daniel Jeremiah had the Packers choosing Chris Olave at 22 and then circling back to Dotson at 28, uh, which I think I think the quarterback would be happy with that. You know, could Dotson go 22? Could he go 28? He just seems firmly in that 20 to 32 and I don't know. I'm always skeptical when NFL teams kind of do the the one for one uh, in the draft where it's clear that they are just plugging in a need. But I think that both of those teams, I think that would be pretty ideal, I think, landing spots for Dotson, even with these top targets moving on. And I think it's important to note, you know, it's OK to address needs when when it intersects with value. And so at that stage of the draft, if you're a playoff caliber team, you've got a need for wide receiver that intersects with value at that stage of the game. And it could be Dotson. It could be one of a number of of guys there. And I I would imagine, you know, teams across the league are not really viewing Dotson as a true, you know, long-term wide receiver one. You know, I I think, I think he's, he's going to be viewed as more of that second option or slot option, but then you kind of mix that with the idea that, okay, the, his quickness and the way that he runs routes can be a factor for us right now. So you have some immediacy with that, but I think you do sacrifice a little bit on the back end in terms of how, how high his ceiling can be because, you know, limit certain limitations and stuff like that. I think playoff caliber teams with quarterbacks like that should and would be interested in a guy who runs incredible routes, has uh, reliable hands, and has the quickness to get that job done. I think there's something to be said about being able to plug in Dotson in year one and still get some upside, certainly, but everybody knows he's not that six three, you know, two hundred and ten pound burner at the same time. Yeah, I thought that looking at Mel Kuyper Jr.'s most recent mock draft, he had Dotson going to the Bills at number twenty five. And that's where you've got Stefan Diggs. Uh Gabriel Davis was was the breakout performer um in the uh in the playoff game. They got rid of Cole Beasley. They signed someone who I am blanking on right now, who is a, a short-term solution in the slot. But it that would be kind of, I think, where Dotson could go in and really, you know, do some damage, especially with Josh Allen just kind of chucking it up there. Um, we've seen Dotson's catch radius. Uh, he can he can make some quarterbacks uh, look pretty good uh, if they're even if they're a little overzealous sometimes. 
And I think, uh, you know, talk about the names that we've just linked Jahan Dotson to Josh Allen, Aaron Rodgers, and Patrick Mahomes. You know, and they're not the only ones, obviously, but, um, Stefan Diggs would be a nice mentor for, for Dotson because he gets the job done at a high, high level in much the same way that Jahan Dotson would like to get the job done at, at the next level. Um, a couple other names here. Um, Arnold Ebiketti and Brandon Smith. I lumped them together because Mel Kuyper seems to think that they're maybe pretty closely linked in terms of their overall value, maybe in that second round range for, for both of them. Questions to answer for both of them, but certainly I think they've demonstrated this offseason, you know, this pre-draft that they have the physical capabilities to, to be, you know, really good players at the next level. Yeah, it was really interesting uh, what uh, Mel Kuyper had to say about uh, about Evacetti, uh yesterday because originally Kuyper had Evacetti as a he had him I think going number sixteen uh, to the Eagles. He had him as a top twenty pick initially in the most recent mock draft. He didn't have him in the first round, and and Kuyper said that he sees him as a as a firmly in the second round pick, even though he likes him a little bit more than Todd McShay. Um, so I don't exactly know what that means for for the boards, but Evacetti was in kind of the ESPN consensus uh, top five, I think, outside linebackers or defensive ends list. So, you know, it's a big time edge rusher, edge rusher draft. You look at the top with Aiden Hutchinson and uh, Kayvon Thibodeau. Obviously, David Ajabo's injury kind of changes things up a little bit there. But it's the type of thing where I think Ebiketti is setting himself up to be a, a really good value for a team um, in the second round. The Brandon Smith. Uh, quote from Mel Kuyper was kind of interesting that he said that he could see Brandon Smith going ahead of Evacetti. And obviously that's based off of the, the tools uh, as kind of we we've talked about over and over again. Um, and Kuyper kind of threw out late first round uh, for Brandon Smith, um, which I think probably a little bit more of a stretch, but I think by the time we get to the end of April, I think Brandon Smith will be firmly in the, the second round conversation after kind of he's floated around that, that third round range for a while. You know, we talked about this before. I think he did enough to win over at least one team in that second round range. If you're dreaming upon upside and you're picking in the middle of the second round or something, Brandon Smith would make some sense. Um, there are some things that he needs to accomplish and, and to fine tune, obviously. But I think, you know, most guys in the second round and beyond have things to accomplish or fine-tune about their game so it's just kind of I think somebody's going to fall in love with Brandon Smith and it, it could very well happen in the second round uh, to contrast that I mean Arnold Abiketti doesn't scream tools but his tools are fine for the NFL and I think he he proved that at the NFL combine he's just you know when you stack him up against Thibodeau and Hutchinson like you don't see elite length or elite twitch maybe but this is a guy who plays a pretty physical brand. I think we've seen him at Penn State win one-on-one matchups with, you know, bull rush with a variety of pass rush moves, power, speed. For me, I've seen everything I need to see in terms of his pass rush ability. I know um, Mel Kuyper mentioned shoring up his run defense a little bit, and, you know, I'm sure that's part of it. But I also feel like when Mel Kuyper put him at 16 overall, he was just trying to tell the NFL draft world, I really like this guy. And now he's, Arnold Abiketti didn't do anything to slide. Uh, I think he's just, this is maybe just a bit of an overcorrection on his part to, to land him right in the right value range, which could be in the first round. But I don't know if, uh, I don't know if that's going to happen, but certainly in the early second round, somebody's going to get a really solid player with a really solid frame with a really solid uh, repertoire of pass rush moves. 
Evic Hedy is really interesting to me in terms of how he measured out at the combine. Um, I don't know if you're how big of a fan you are of, of the mock draftable spider charts. Um, I love, I love looking at that because it's just kind of a, a very, it's an interesting way to put things into context. And, you know, it, it's fun to open up Brandon Smith's, uh, spider chart. And it's just like a hexagon. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like maxed out every direction. But Evic Hedy, I was, really fascinated looking at it where he's six, two, six, two and a half, but which put him according to these mock draftable numbers I put up in the 16th percentile among defensive linemen, but his arm length was in the 72nd percentile and his wingspan was in the 71st percentile, which I think is when you think about length, a lot of times you think about height and he's not the tallest, but he is kind of built in a way where he has the long arms that you want to kind of keep the keep blockers away um, to be able to to cause some problems in traffic, which I thought was really interesting. And then the other side of that coin was Tariq Castro Fields, who I think we've always kind of said we've referred to as a long corner. I think that we were all kind of interchangeably using long and tall, which isn't necessarily the same thing. Terry Castro Fields was uh, six feet and a half inch, uh, which uh, was in the 70th percentile, but his arm length was only in the 26th percentile and his wingspan was in the 57th percentile, which were numbers that I was just kind of surprised by. Obviously, I'm not a scout and, you know, looking on the field, I can't necessarily see how that looks, how that operates. But in terms of how we talk about these players and what the numbers actually say, uh, that was kind of an interesting development for me coming out of the coming out of the combine and kind of you know the the preconceived notions um, of some of these uh, some of these prospects. So I think with a defensive end or edge rush position, that arm length and wingspan number is more important than the height. You know, you can look at some certain situations where it probably be beneficial to be able to you know not be towered over by uh, you know an offensive tackle, but. I think functionally speaking, the arm length is more important than, than the, the height. So I think the fact that he is above average in those departments, you know, again, I think that speaks to, you know, I said his, his tools are fine. Uh, they're, they're not screaming anything, but I think that probably alleviated some concerns for NFL teams. And then it's interesting at the cornerback position, arm length is definitely beneficial. Height, I think is beneficial too. But I would say the arm length thing is probably more important um, in that one-on-one edge rush than in that one-on-one, even in like press coverage. Well, I mean, it is like the the Joey Porter Jr. thing that they always talk about is that his arms, his arm, he's got the longest arms and that makes him able to be a, a, like a stickier corner and kind of keep up with guys. And obviously when it gets down to it, a lot of this is it's all about the tape. But I always think that it's worth kind of like you come out of the combine and a lot of people are like, oh, well, these numbers don't matter because you, you know, you've seen the tape. Like, why can't you just watch the tape? Why do you need to like drill it down so much on this? I think that's a, might be a bit of a Dave Jones take there. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> these NFL teams have so much data. Um, all of these guys, they've been poking and prodding college prospects for, you know, for forever at this point. And I think there are sort of some data points where you kind of know that these things translate. Um, these are things that lets this type of athlete be successful at, at the next level. Um, you know, I think that like the broad jump numbers, vertical jump numbers, measuring that explosiveness, that burst at certain positions, I think is is really important. Even if 
yeah, like they're doing it in, you know, in spandex on turf uh, without pads on, but you want all the information you can get. And, you know, obviously the draft is an imperfect science, but it's kind of like the the stars thing now where if a guy's a five star, it's probably right. Yeah, you know, it, it it is an imperfect science and there's art to it and all and all that, but I think we tend to, you know, oversimplify, you know, the idea of evaluating a player uh for his ability to make the jump to the next level, all the speed, all the strength, all the stuff that changes whenever you make that jump to fit in your particular scheme, maybe to work with a particular coach to um to be able to keep getting bigger or keep getting stronger. I mean, there is a lot, a lot of projection involved. You know, you look at these things and you say, okay, wingspan in its own, on its own is not hyper important, but it all paints the picture of what you're seeing on film. And I think knowing um, what a guy's arm length is maybe helps you watch that guy's film a little bit better and evaluate him a little bit better. This is the Blue White Breakdown. Welcome to Cureleaf a medical marijuana dispensary. Whether you're a long-time patient or you're just getting acquainted with this incredible plant, Cureleaf of Pennsylvania is honored to guide you along your medical marijuana journey. Have questions? Visit us at cureleaf.com or stop in to see us at any of our locations, including our new state college dispensary located at 1248 South Atherton Street. Let's talk medical marijuana and let our confidence become yours. Anything else as far as Brandon Smith goes? I mean, I feel like we've kind of, you know, uh, touched on where he is as, as a prospect, how he helped himself at the NFL combine. But I think, you know, Mel Kuyper touched on just the idea of versatility. And I think he's strong enough, fast enough, has the wingspan. He has whatever the physical tools you could want, uh, to line him up at probably any linebacker position. He's shown at least physically he's capable of doing that. Yeah, I think that the all of the talent is there, all the versatility is there, and uh, it's kind of feels reductive a little bit. But I think that he's someone, especially where it's going to come down to the coaching and kind of the developmental program that he'll end up with with wherever he lands. Off the top of my head, I you know I it, I can't think of like the best linebackers coach uh, in the NFL right now, but I think that he'll need to go somewhere where they can put him in the right place to succeed. Like, I don't think that it would be a good fit if someone drafts him and says, all right, you're our middle linebacker right now. The entire defense is going to revolve around you. I think that he's someone where he can fit in more of a, a specialized role early on um, as he kind of develops. And that's the thing, too, with him is that I think that teams aren't going to draft him off of what he did at Penn State. They're not necessarily drafting him off these testing numbers. They're drafting him based off of what they think they can turn him into over the next, over the course of that rookie contract, whether it's four years or even if he creeps into the, into the first round, then it's five years. The more simple you can make his role in year one, allow him to grow into the, you know, the multifaceted responsibilities of that job. Uh, one other guy real quick, well, actually Jaquan Brisker too, um, looks to be in that, maybe that third round range, which I think, you know, Mel Kuyper says that, and, you know, said that this week and, uh, probably supports what we've seen from from him um, through the pre-draft process. What about Rasheed Walker? <laughs> yeah, Rasheed Walker. Uh, I think Daniel Jeremiah had some really interesting things to say about him earlier this spring. Mel Kuyper did too. Uh, Mel Kuyper sees him as a as a day three pick. Obviously, he kind of had the same he had the same things to say that kind of all of us saw uh, out of Rasheed Walker, where 
he was just so up and down. The, the consistency wasn't really there. So, um, Mel Kuyper sees him as a day three guy. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he creeps into the compensatory selections at the end of the third round, um, at the end of day two. I think the end of that third round is going to be really interesting on the Friday night of the draft from, uh, from the Penn State perspective with guys like Rashid Walker, Jesse Lucetta, uh, depending on what happens with Brandon Smith, there could be a lot of guys who could come off the board uh, pretty late at night that Friday. But um, Rashid Walker, it's interesting. He was obviously hurt at the end of last year. I'm interested to see kind of what his conversations have been like with teams behind the scenes. Like, what do they want to know about him? What are they really curious about in terms of how he played last year? But I think that Daniel Jeremiah pointed to that uh, that Michigan game where couple times, Aiden Hutchinson and David Ajago had their way with him, but he had his way with them a couple other times. So he is, I think, the most interesting case in terms of what we thought he was a year ago versus where he is now. A lot of the other guys on the Penn State board, I think, have either risen or stayed pretty steady, but he's someone who's, I think, slipped a little bit. And how far that slide goes, I think, is going to be one of the the more interesting stories uh, for, for draft night. Well, you say up and down. The up version of Rasheed Walker has first-round talent. Uh, it's just a matter of whether teams believe that they'll get that most of the time. And, you know, at their core, football coaches love to be able to trust somebody. You know, that's why you put the ball on the turf as a running back. It shakes a coaching staff's trust in you. So if a coach can't trust that the best version of you is going to show up on, on a down-to-down basis, it's going to be tough him he's gonna have to prove that with consistency you know at at training camp and behind the scenes and work in the weight room uh so he's gonna have to prove it to some nfl team but obviously the upside is there the uh, under armor camp coming up this weekend where you'll be and there's some interesting names for fans to know yeah uh down in outside of baltimore at calvert hall uh me and joe hermit gonna get the chance to look at some 2023 2024 and even a couple 2025 uh recruits who got invited to this Under Armour camp. Um, I did a, a quick scan of the, the the roster this morning. I need to go back through and look at it a little closely, but Neo Avery and Anthony Donko uh, are two of the Penn State commits who are going to be there. A couple other names in the class of 2023 that have flown around include Sean Battle, the cornerback from Newman Gretti, uh, Jameel Lyons out of Roman Catholic in Philly, and Tony Rojas, the linebacker from Virginia. Those are names who have kind of been floating around the, the Penn State ether a little bit. And then in terms of the the rising juniors who to really keep an eye on, um, Emilio Agard from St. Joe's Prep and Tysir Denmark um, from Roman Catholic. Those are two Philly prospects in the class of 2024 who I think Denmark just recently got an offer from Alabama. Penn State was in on Agard early. So those are two guys that are going to be, I think, names to know in Pennsylvania in, in the class of 2024. So it'll be fun to kind of see these guys in action, get to talk to them, get to see what they think about Penn State, and then kind of uh, we're, we're off and running. So we've got <clears throat> on both ends of it now. So, well, all three ends. So Penn State's un, you know going through spring practice right now. That's the present. You've also got two elements of the future here with uh, guys looking to improve their position at the NFL draft at Pro Day. And the recruiting uh, cycle, it, it it always keeps turning. The wheel keeps turning on the recruiting front. And I would expect as we start heading towards April and the blue-white game, we'll start hearing more and more on that front too. So make sure you follow along with Daniel Gallon 
uh, at Daniel JT Gallon on Twitter. Follow along on penlive.com and on the Blue White Breakdown, where we will keep touching on these topics all through the spring and into the summer. And as always, check us out, penlive.com slash football. And the Blue White Breakdown is available on Alexa, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and YouTube. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. This has been the Blue White Breakdown, brought to you by Penlive. Live.